This is Look West, a podcast from California's Assembly Democrats. You can feel the static of a new nation, uncomfortable in nature's odd generation. From every corner of the world, a migration. We resonate in union like a vibration. You can feel us coming like a hurricane, chopping at the bit we hear the winds of change. Millennials can govern, they can take the job seriously, they're good at what they do, they are caring and compassionate, and they're going to do what they believe is right. I think our generation is very socially conscious, Mm -hmm. and that brings a lot of good conversation, discussions to the forefront. It's becoming a younger person's game, kind of, you know, a generational shift, if you will. I really think that California is an example of you know what it means to get millennials involved get them engaged get them in government and to watch the leadership well hello everybody my name is assembly member ian calderon i represent the 57th assembly district and i want to welcome everybody today to our episode of look west and with me i have a couple of my good colleagues miss sabrina cervantes as well as mr mark berman we are all members of the millennial caucus in the state assembly and we are recording this episode here at the Capitol. Say hi, guys. Introduce yourself. What districts do you represent? Well, hello. Uh, happy to be here, be a part of this conversation. I am Sabrina Cervantes, representing the 60th Assembly District out in Southern California, specifically Western Riverside County. And I'm coming from uh, a little bit further north in the state, uh, Mark Berman, representing the 24th Assembly District, which is uh, the birthplace of Silicon Valley, kind of Palo Alto, Mountain View, Menlo Park, Sunnyvale, and the communities around there, all the way out to the coast. So we've got some good surfing from my friend Ian Calderon, and uh, really happy to be here today. Thanks, Ian, for inviting us into your office to chat. Well, guys, today I think kind of what we want to do is talk a little bit about you know, the Millennial Caucus and what we do in the Millennial Caucus, but I think what's more important is our perspective as millennials. You know, we are, you know, obviously the first of our generation to be serving in the state legislature. What we do doesn't have impacts just across this country, but it has impacts around the world. And I think it's really important uh, that our voices are represented. And I think that that's why we all ran. We wanted to have a millennial voice, millennial representation in the state legislature where we could have a seat at the table and we can have a conversation to at least say, hey, guys, I know we're working on this issue, but this is what's important to our generation. Mm -hmm. This is how we view it. These are some of the challenges that we're facing. And so, you know, I think maybe it might be interesting if, you know, we can kind of go around and talk a little bit about our path to getting to the assembly and, you know, what was, you know, the motivation to run and why you wanted to run. So Sabrina, if you want to start. Yeah, absolutely. I'll jump in. So my path was very unique. Uh, As you know, I came here taking out a two-term incumbent, and so it was a much more difficult path I had to take. Uh, I immediately, when I started campaigning 18 months before I was elected, we had a lot of folks that were not as supportive, Uh, even a lot of local folks who you thought you know, you've built relationships with that you thought they would come out and support you. And a lot of folks, I think, underestimated us and uh, what we can actually do on the ground. Did you think, do you think they they, they underestimated you a lot because of your age? I believe that had a lot to do with it. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, And because I'm a woman and Mm -hmm. because I'm also openly gay. Mm -hmm. 
Some folks didn't think my district was ready for any of those three. And so combining, uh, you put those all together and uh, they just thought that was too big of a hurdle for us to cross. Uh, so with that, we worked even harder and a lot of times I had to step into rooms where there were only men at the table making decisions on whether they should endorse me or not or support me in, in this endeavor. So realizing that, you know, I had to walk in knowing all the folks, all the women who came before me in order for me to even have a seat at that table, to even be considered for endorsement. So I, I think about our ancestors. I have to reach back and think about all those women who stood before me to help me really give me that motivation, that extra motivation I needed every day to get through those challenges. Uh, I had family support. Uh, my family came out and walked with me every day and uh, they were by my side making sure that we can get through this together and uh, my fiance at the time and now we're married so she's along for the ride and it's certainly been one of the greatest joys being able to represent my community coming across a lot of the baby boomers they're excited to see a millennial represent them and they've shared stories with me uh, whether it's now you know, looking at their grandchildren, they're like, we at least have someone that we know is fighting for our district and who hopefully will stay here for a while and continue representing us in different capacities. But having millennials at the table and being that voice is so critical on a number of different issues, whether it's veterans, student veterans, which is something I'm passionate about that I work on personally uh, when it comes to the education realm, kicking uh, kickstart our loan forgiveness programs that we're working on. I mean, these are things that are impacting so many across the state and nationwide. You know, I'll never forget with you, Sabrina, because obviously I, I'd come down and, you know, I was supporting you and, you know, walked right. door to door for you. And you know, I'll never forget towards the end, uh, you know, we were at your headquarters and I said, you know, Sabrina, I don't know if you, you realize this, but, you know, if you win, you're going to be the first woman millennial ever elected to the California right. State Legislature. And what was that feeling of knowing that you were the first female millennial ever elected to the California State Legislature? It's a huge accomplishment. And, and so you're right. At the time, that never crossed my mind. You know, I was in this to uh, really try to do good for my district, and I never thought, you know, that I would be coming into this as the first female millennial. But now taking a step back and reflecting on that, I think about all the young women I speak to in my district that that has an impact on. So when I go speak to whether it's elementary, middle, high school, or college students, especially Latinas, they're the ones that notice that even more. They're the ones that bring that up in conversation more than I do, to be quite honest. And uh, I, I think that that inspires me. Seeing their reaction gives me that much more motivation to keep doing what we're doing. What about you, Mark? I want you to talk a little bit about being a millennial in the state legislature and some of the things that are really important to you. And, you know, maybe, you know, what, whether you felt like being a millennial in the legislature has been uh, something that has been helped you or has made things a little more difficult for you. You know, I got involved in, in government because I was really annoyed um, at prior generations, frankly. Uh, I, I first got involved on infrastructure issues. 
Uh, and if you think about it, infrastructure, it's not sexy, it's not exciting, but these are the critical assets that communities need to thrive for future decades and future generations. And, and my community of Palo Alto and really the state of California invested a lot in infrastructure in the 50s and 60s. Uh, and so the generations that came after the 50s and 60s benefited from that, that investment, but they kind of neglected that investment. And so when it came time for our generation, the millennial generation, to come back and start working and have the benefit of that investment, parks and the quality of our streets and public safety buildings, fire stations, you know, police headquarters, those assets had deteriorated significantly. That meant that they're not going to be around for our generation unless we do something about it. And so that was what first got me involved, uh, which no 28-year-old in their right mind uh, at the time I was 28 was caring about infrastructure in Palo Alto. You know, that meant that Palo Alto wasn't going to be a good place for me to raise a family for, for decades like my parents had done with me. So that's something that it's not necessarily right in front of our face, but it's something that impacts our, our generation a lot. Uh, I love being a millennial in the legislature, but it was a challenge in the campaign. I, I, I had eight candidates total. It was myself and seven others. Uh, I was the youngest candidate by far. It was, it was kind of in side comments uh, or, or in backhanded ways where people would allude to my age. So I'd have opponents of mine who'd say, oh, you know, I think so highly of Mark. He's such a great guy. He reminds me of me, me 30 years ago, right? Like that's, that's not really a compliment. One friend, a former colleague on the city council said to me the other day, when you jumped into the race, I thought you were crazy. Uh, you know, I just really didn't think you had a chance. Um, and, and so to prove those folks wrong, to work harder and to bust some stereotypes that right. exist around the, about the millennial generation, uh, I think meant a lot uh, to me personally. Uh, and now, as Sabrina said, you know, baby boomers do come up and say, it's so great to see younger people get involved and take leadership positions. And I love your energy and I love, mm -hmm. you know, how passionate you are uh, about the work that you're doing. It takes some time. We have to kind of get people over their misconceptions about our generation. But I think that's happening, and I think that's happening even more now with certain things that are happening across the country. And, and ha watching youth step up and make a difference on issues that, that nobody's been able to crack over the past couple of decades. You know, it was an interesting path for myself because I was the very first millennial, as I was saying earlier, and yeah. elected to the state legislature. And so when I started my campaign, I was 25 years old. And everyone that I talked to, everyone that I looked at was looking at me like, you're 25, you're 26, you know, running for this office. What's your life experience? What do you bring to the table? And, you know, the reality is, is that we won our races because we wanted it more and we worked harder. Mm -hmm. uh, but I also feel like, you know, my, my age in a way... As, as much as it held me back from people being able to take me seriously among, amongst the, the political elite, um, you know, the age was an issue there, but, I, but amongst the voters, every time I knock on a door, it was always the same thing. You're young, and that's what we need because you have new ideas and you mm -hmm. look at the world fresh in a different way. Mm -hmm. You have a fresh perspective. And, and I'll never forget going to this uh, senior living community within my district in Santa Fe Springs. And every single door I knocked on, they said the same thing. We need young people. And they always invited me in. But it was interesting because when I got elected, I got elected less than a month after I turned 27. So mm -hmm. I'm in my sixth year. I'm 32 now. Mm -hmm. uh, less than a month after turning 27. And I found out real fast 
uh, that the expectations of me were so low because I was young. Because there was nobody that they could look at or point to to say, well, here's somebody who's young who proved that they could handle the job and do the work and take it seriously and not just go out and have a good time and you know, not pay attention to their district and whatever. Um, and in, the reality of this job is that you just you have about two or three months when you're elected to establish your, mm-hmm. your reputation. And then after that, it is pretty much set in stone. So for me... I knew what I was capable of. I knew that their concerns about me were completely misplaced, but I actually relished in the fact that they had such low mm-hmm. expectations of me because that bar was so low. It was really easy to, to not only sure. overcome it, but overcome it by a, by a mile. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that really shaped a lot of people's perceptions and perspectives on somebody being young. Yep. Because when I then went to talk to him and said, hey, you know, there's this guy named Evan Lowe, mm-hmm. who is one of our colleagues and is a millennial, right. you know, you should really take him seriously and, and, and I think he'd be a great member. It was no longer this, well, he is young and what's his experience and I don't know because he's a millennial. It was, oh, yeah, yeah, well, you know, I'm happy to talk to him and, and you know, he seems mm-hmm. like a great guy and, you know, seems really smart and, you know, he'd be, be a really good member. And absolutely, that's what he became after he was elected. And yep. so... I, I felt like there was a little bit of pressure. Actually, no, I take that. Sure. I felt like there was a lot of pressure <laughs> yeah. because I was the one carrying the millennial flagpole because uh-huh. I was the first one. Uh, right. But once we were able to kind of overcome that hurdle of showing that we're serious members, we are very uh, diligent in working mm-hmm. on our issues and maintaining our dis- you know, the relationships mm-hmm. and, the, and the events in our districts while also at the same time introducing and managing real relevant policy that actually makes a difference in people's lives it put us in in a good position to be able to get more millennials elected mm-hmm. uh, and and i think that there there is no doubt whether it's in this you know the political structure that is already existing in their minds or in voters minds that millennials can govern they mm-hmm. can take the job seriously they're good at what they do they are caring and compassionate right. and they're going to do what they believe is right uh, and I think it's important for millennials just to be engaged in general because in the end, don't we all want to be able to have a say in what our future looks mm-hmm. like? Our parents got that. Yep. You know, they, they got to dictate that. You know, they, they voted for the people that shared their values and created this world that they wanted to live in. And now that's our turn. And that's the value of us being here is being able to dictate that future yeah. for ourselves. And it's super important mm-hmm. uh, that we translate that into getting more millennials engaged and involved in government because this is the way the world works. Mm-hmm. And this is how you make, create that positive change and live in that perfect world that we all want to be who we want to be and live how we want to live. So I want to pivot a little bit now. Maybe we can start with you, Sabrina, on, on talking about an issue, whether it's an actual policy issue or more of a, of a you know, philosophical issue. What's something right now that's really important to you? Well, I'll share with you one of the items we've been working on for just over the past year has been with our veteran students Mm -hmm. across the state. And I have Norco College in the heart of my district and many veterans that are coming from our recent wars, coming back into the higher education system and wanting to find career pathways and a lot of their skills are not transferable. So they have to take all these courses all over again. So it's setting them back where they can just be jumping in ahead and then if they want to go into a UC or Cal State of their choosing. So looking at the articulation, uh, not just for veteran students, even though they're a very unique population that I am focused on, but looking at all of the students across our 
community college system and how we can help them transition faster out of community college and into other institutions of higher education. That's a passion of mine. Um, my Both of my parents went through community college then to Cal State and UC. My sisters are going through community college. So we see firsthand some of the hurdles. There's a lot of great things that are going on at our community colleges, but I this is one way that I think that we could even do better for students across the state. So that's something that I'm personally passionate about coming from a family of veterans Riverside County is a home to the third lar largest veteran population, so. That's an absolutely important issue, and I'm glad you're working on that. It's really, really <laughs> strong leadership, too. Yeah. What about you, Mark? Well, following up on, on Sabrina's kind of lead on education issues, mm -hmm. uh, when I got to the assembly, one of the first things I did was ask Speaker Rendon to let me create a select committee on California's 1960 master plan for higher education, which is kind of the exact same concept as what I was talking about earlier in terms of infrastructure. Uh, because in 1960, California created this master plan for higher education that promised three things. Access to an affordable, high quality public higher education for every California student who qualified. Uh, and we did a great job of living up to that promise for a couple of decades. Uh, and that's actually what made California one of the economic leaders, or I would argue the economic leader in the world, was that strong workforce that we were generating locally of California students. Uh, and that master plan worked well for, let's say, you know, 30 or so years, but it was created 58 years ago. Uh, and we're no longer meeting that promise for today's students, or really for the students of our uh, generation who have already gone through college, uh, of access to an affordable, high-quality public higher education. It's still high-quality, but we've lost the accessibility. There are 30,000 CSU students who qualified to get into schools who were turned down, and we've lost the affordability part. Uh, you know, Members of the millennial generation uh, are graduating with way more debt than prior generations. You used to be able to get through a UC or CSU practically debt-free, and now students are graduating with tens of thousands of dollars of debt, and it's impacting the, the career choices that they go into. And so uh, working on that, trying to get back to meeting that promise for today's students uh, is something that I care a lot about and, and uh, I'm going to be working on for as long as I have to to get something accomplished. You know, that's interesting, uh, interesting topic because you guys are bo you both hit on, on education you know, when it comes to K through 12, I'm really concerned about making sure our, we're educating our kids uh, to compete in the world economy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I did a bill focused on financial literacy a couple mm -hmm. years ago because, you know, we went through this great recession uh, that we obviously in this state suffered greatly for. And, you know, we're expecting kids coming out of high school uh, to not make financially irresponsible decisions, yet we do nothing to educate them financially. Mm -hmm. And so I passed yeah. this bill which said, K through 12, you got to have six years of financial literacy. Uh, and it got signed by the governor. Now it's going to take a couple years to be implemented, but you know, that's just one piece. You know, what about mm -hmm. tech literacy? You know, what, science, are we, you know, yeah. what are we teaching these, our kids to, to be able to kind of fill what we have in your district, Mark, which is you know, the reality that by 2025, 20, 2030, we're going to have a, mm -hmm. a gap of a million college-educated mm -hmm. uh, workers to, to, that aren't going to be able to be there to fill the, the jobs that baby boomers are going to be retiring from. Sure. Yeah. It's a huge issue. Yeah. And all of this on top of the fact that higher education is more expensive today. You know, we, we tell kids, okay, out of high school, you have to go to college because that's the path to a brighter future. That, that's what you need to do. That's the, way, that's the way this works. And so they go, you know, they trust us, they go, and then they get saddled with 
thousands and thousands of dollars of student loan debt that puts them in a position that when they graduate, they can't afford to live on their own because they have probably a $400 mm-hmm. a month student loan debt payment mm-hmm. that they got to pay off. And, and so they can't live on their own. They live back in, at home with, with mom and dad. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I'm, I'm just really concerned mm-hmm. that well, at what point do we say enough is enough and start to really focus on updating our curriculum, making sure we make higher education more affordable, and, and, and we really educate our kids to compete in this world economy because we're just not competing against you know, our, the kids down the street and the, and the other people that are in our communities. We're, just, we're competing against other people from other nations. Sure. That's what it means to live in a world economy. And so it, it's a scary dynamic that we face, that we face now, mm-hmm. but I also am hopeful because I think that there are a lot of individuals like you guys that are working on these issues Mm-hmm. You know, I'm just curious, philosophically, you know, as a millennial, how do you view the world? You know, what, you know not just yourself as a millennial, but other millennials um, view government and, and view the world and, and why maybe they're so anti-corporation and so uh, pro uh, helping other people, you know, not necessarily taking care of your political friends or, you know, what your corporation's bottom line is and that being the motivating factor to do anything. I think, I mean, you know, I feel like we look at things a little more flexibly. And, and I think part of that is because we're used to getting information very quickly and integrating that into the decisions that we make. Uh, we have our core values, mm-hmm. uh, but we're more open to ways of achieving those values and objectives. Uh, I think that creates more opportunities. Uh, I think that creates more opportunities for bipartisan kind of compromise on some things, I hope. Um, and there's some members of the Millennial Caucus that. Uh, you know, I've had some very interesting conversations with that. Sometimes we feel, you know, we'll, we'll agree on the issue. It's the traditional politics mm-hmm. that's holding us back. Absolutely. Um, and, and so as we get more millennials elected, uh, you know, maybe we can start breaking away from that uh, and, and finding more of those areas that we think are going to help us progress. Mm-hmm. But that are, as you said earlier, with financial literacy are different from how we've done it in the past. Well, my my perspective on this is, any issue that we work on, I've just been here in a year and what, almost six months, there's already been policies that we've tried to push forth that we get a lot of just folks not wanting us to head down that path because you open Pandora's box. Mm-hmm. And I look at it as, well, then we must be doing something right. <laughs> if folks are afraid to have these conversations, we need to have these conversations and we need to look at paths on how we can get to a goal. It may not be our plan A or our plan B, but we're still gonna find other routes to get there mm-hmm. and achieve whatever it is that we're trying to achieve for the betterment of our communities or specifically our districts. Um, I, I come at it a very optimistic perspective. You know, I have a lot of faith in, in what we're doing here and, and in people and in our constituents. And I wanna make sure that uh, we can continue pushing that needle and tackling issues that maybe weren't spoken about five years ago. Uh, So Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think today we have technology that's at our fingertips for the good and the bad. And I think it's, you know, looking at how are we going to utilize that for the better and just being smart on our approaches. I certainly want to make sure that uh, we can at times touch on issues that are challenging for people. I wasn't brought here to keep things the way they are. Uh, 
that certainly would make our, my job fun. I, I enjoy being able to tackle some of these hard issues. And I think our generation is very socially conscious. Mm-hmm. And that brings a lot of good conversation, discussions to the forefront, uh, especially when we have to work with our Senate colleagues. You know, it's interesting. Um people's perspective on a millennial. I feel like we get such a bad rap for, we do get a for, bad rap. for things that we really don't deserve a bad rap for. It's mm-hmm. like, oh, you know, you guys ruined toast with avocado. And it's like, you know, it's like <laughs> you do all these things and it's... Or made it way better. Yeah, well, but that's the thing. It's like, you know, it's always... People are always coming at it from this perspective of, oh, you're a snowflake or you've ruined something when it's, well... Why does it have to be something negative that we've ruined? Why why can't we make why can't it just be that we just made it our own? Like you had an opportunity to make whatever you wanted your own mm-hmm. as a generation. Now that's what we're doing for ourselves. And just sure. because it's different doesn't mean it's bad or it's negative. It's just different mm-hmm. and it's how we view the world. I mean, it's interesting because this idea of fairness and what that means. Everybody's ability mm-hmm. to kind of have the same level even playing field where no one deserves any more or any less than anyone else. Mm-hmm to become who it is that they want to become mm-hmm. or be what it is that they want to be. And, you know, and it's like I, I had a conversation recently with uh, some of the life sciences industry, most pharmaceuticals, hospitals, and, mm-hmm. you know, university, Stanford University. I was talking to them because they're like, well, why do, why do millennials hate us, like corporations so much? You know, we're the ones that, you know, pay their parents their salary that they then turn around and use to help pay for their college and gave them a, a roof over their head and, and pay for their food. And I said, you guys, you're just not – first, look at what you're doing to me. You're talking, which they were, down to me as if I don't know or as if I don't mm-hmm. understand. First, I'm a member, A, take that into consideration. But then B – I'm a millennial, so your automatic uh, instinct is to talk down to me as if I don't understand, as if I'm somehow uh, unaware mm-hmm. of what it is that you do. Or, and ungrateful. And, and ungrateful. Whereas, you know, I, I think where, where they get tripped up and our parents' generations get tripped up a lot about where we are and how we feel and being upset about it is that we're a generation that, that looks at a corporation and says, okay, now, with the money that you did, uh, that that you earned, then the and the decisions that you made. Did you make your decisions because you really felt like it was the right thing to do for the greatest amount of people, or did you make the decisions you made because you care most about that bottom line mm-hmm. and what you bring home and what that what that net profit is? And generally, nine times out of ten, the answer is is you cared about the bottom line and the and and, and the money that you brought in, not what was best for the, a greater amount of people. And and that's where millennials differ is because. They don't view the world in those terms. They mm-hmm. view it as, no, every decision, whether you're a legislator, uh, an individual, a corporation, an executive, every decision that you make, you should be making it based on what is best for the greater good. Now, mm-hmm. obviously, there are variations and different opinions mm-hmm. on what that means. But this idea that I'm a corporation, I have money, and I get to use it to influence the world, that's just not the way that millennials think that advocacy should be done. That's why they hate corporate uh corporate donations mm-hmm. to any legislator and you know there and there's just a fundamental mistrust of corporations doing the right thing because you know a lot of times we hear that they don't uh, but even of politicians because what's your motivation is your motivation to help people or is or is it to to do a favor for you know whoever your biggest contributor mm-hmm. is and you know we can sit here and say well that's not the case all we want but yet there are ample examples of that happening. Mm-hmm. And millennials, right. they hate that and mm-hmm. they hate this idea that that their lives are being dictated under those terms mm-hmm. and based in 
within those parameters. So, you know, I'm, so I'm curious, if you take a look at our federal government, I, I mean, I, I feel very strongly about the federal government in certain ways, and, and, and I just don't feel like they are responding to the greater need of us as a nation. Mm-hmm. They're more focused on power and maintaining that power and pointing the finger at the other side saying, well, you know, everything's going to be great as long as we get them out of here, mm-hmm. uh, which I just don't think is, is, is productive. Uh, we can all differ, but at the same time, that's government, that's democracy. But I mean, what is your guy? You know, what are your perspectives on the federal government right now? <laughs> it's a loaded question. <laughs> and choose so the I'm answer gonna, however you so want. I'm let Sabrina go first. Well, it's, it's uh, certainly not productive, and I think at times uh, unhealthy. There's just all, so much negativity. I feel like that's coming out of Washington, and as a millennial, you know, I, I would. I hoped for better. I hoped that you know we would have better representation, uh, someone that would be doing the people's work to the best of their ability. And it's uh, certainly disheartening. But at the same time, I think that it's fueled this fire in so many folks, whether we're talking about the millennial generation, the baby boomers, um, what is it, Gen X, mm-hmm. right? I think that there's this synergy happening that I see, at least around my district, uh, that's naturally occurring. I mean, I thought I saw it in 2016, but I'm seeing it twofold now. And I think that to me, that provides a lot of encouragement, like, okay, now we're going to really see people's voices coming to the forefront. Now, I'm hoping that those Uh, voters that stayed home in 2016 for various reasons are going to actually turn out to vote during the midterms because for folks that don't think the midterms are not as important, they're almost more important Mm -hmm. than during the presidential election cycle. Absolutely. So that's encouraging to me. And like I said, I always try to look at the the positive side of things and what we can do in light of uh, some challenging times. I certainly want to make sure that we can do whatever we can here in California to protect residents of the state and just Californians who are here to uh, make a better life for themselves mm-hmm. and to have that California dream. I mean, the, where we're at today is certainly it took a lot of work for us to be here. And to me, it's a joy and a privilege to be able to say that I represent over 400,000 constituents, not just that, but the state of California. And uh, I think that it gives a lot of people hope. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's the broader point, right? I mean, we all, regardless of a Republican, Democrat, decline to say, we all want the same thing. We want to live a happy life. Good quality of life. That's it. I mean, we all, that's all we really want. We just differ on how to get there. But it is, it is too partisan. But Mark, yeah, I'm curious. Well, so many thoughts. Um, so one, uh, just on your last point of, about how we all want a good quality of life. And polls now show that for the first time in, I think, maybe forever, uh, you know, people believe that future generations are going to have a lower quality of life than prior generations. And that doesn't happen by accident. And that's not like because a couple of people are mad at about, you know, or don't understand what corporations do. I mean, that's something systemic that society and, our, you know, older generations need to take to heart is that decisions that have been made uh, over decades, in particular when it comes to housing and, and the cost of living, uh, have created a situation where now younger people feel like it's going to be harder for them 
than prior generations, and, and they're going to have a lower quality of life. And that's a real indictment, I think, on, on society uh, and on d- decisions that have been made over, over prior decades. I think in terms of D.C., I feel like there are too many people in D.C. that are really just trying to get there as well the going's good and not thinking about future generations. And uh, the Trump tax cut you know, is a good example of that uh, because we just bankrupted future generations. Um, and, and that's money uh, that we're going to need for roads. That's money that we're going to need for schools. That's money that we're going to need for our generation and our kids' generation. Uh, and yet instead we just gave that back to rich people so that they can buy, you know, another yacht, another yacht. That's not what we believe in. We, we believe that we should be making investments in the future uh, and not just giving money back to people from the past. And, and so um, it's frustrating. Yeah, no, I agree. You know, I, I will say, I, I mean, obviously, I, I think I have a lot of issues with what, what's happening on the federal level. But I think, you know, I think what's, what's most important to me and most concerning to me is the erosion of the institution of government, the erosion of our civic institutions. Mm-hmm. You know, government, especially in the United States, along with the office of the presidency, I mean, the office of the presidency always came with this morality of beyond reproach. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It, it was, you know, there, there was this this moral high ground that always came with the office of the presidency that I, that I just fear is being eroded away. Mm-hmm. And, and we're losing uh, a lot of our ability to be a leader in the world because of what's going on mm-hmm. or what's not going on on the federal level. And, you know, to have this constant undermining of government coming directly from our president is really concerning to me because, you know, as he says things, uh, you know, about the Democrats, this or this politician or, you know, points all the Republican members of Congress and said, oh, well, you guys are all afraid of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you're all afraid of the NRA, which I won't disagree that they are. But it's just it's a constant belittling of the individuals within government and therefore the overall institution mm-hmm. of government, because you have to rely on the people that are in government. Mm-hmm. That, and they're the ones that, you know, they, that run government. So your faith is placed in them. Uh, in order to have this overall great idea or, or confidence in, in, in the institution of government. And, and that's just being eroded away. And I'm really concerned that if people continue to develop this disdain or this lack of interest um, within the institution of government, like it's no longer a place where anything positive can happen, where anything can happen because it's just too far gone, it's too corrupt, there are too many people that are only in it for themselves. Well, that's that's democracy. And I mean, you know, Churchill, I'm not quoting directly, uh, but, you know, democracy is the worst form of government until you compare it to all the rest, (laughs) and we don't want to lose that, Mm -hmm. and we need to preserve that. But yet, when you have the individuals that are in that institution supposed to be upholding the institution to its highest traditions, in its highest traditions... Uh, and they're they're eroding that. I mean, it's 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 scary for me just because I look at my ten and a half month old daughter and mm-hmm. I think, well, what's her future going to look like? Mm-hmm. You know, and we've made so much progress over the last couple decades, and it just feel like a lot of that's being eroded away because people are are reverting back to their more um, less desirable, you know, ideas of. of other individuals because they may look a little bit different or they may believe a little bit different or they may have a different religion or a different skin color. And, 
you know, and the fact that we, we have individuals in our government stoking those flames and, and not calling out hate mm-hmm. where it needs to be called out or not, not pointing out the injustices where they need to be pointed out. I mean, for the president to, to look at neo-Nazis and say there's decent people there, but then to look at you know, other groups, whether, you know, what's Black Lives Matter and say, oh, there are bad people in those movements. That's right. concerning uh, because you're picking and choosing and you're creating a certain image in individuals' minds that listen to that individual or mm-hmm. listen to the president to help develop their own perspective and, and perception of the world. And so that's concerning. And that's, that's, that's my hope would be that we have more people, especially from our generation, showing up to vote to elect new people that no longer, uh, you know, play into the bullshit. They are all about we're America. We're the greatest country in the world. We're going to continue to make great policies that are better for everyone, mm-hmm. not just to select few. And it's time for us as a, as a generation to take charge, mm-hmm. to take lead. And I just don't think that that's going to happen until our generation are the ones that are in the driver's seat. We're getting close to the end here, so I want to give everybody an opportunity to kind of end with some, you know, some final thoughts. Yeah, I mean, I, I'll just a quick follow up on, on what you just said, Ian, is uh, we have a real opportunity right now. Uh, and, and to paraphrase somebody important, I'm sure, you know, never <laughs> fail to take advantage of a good crisis. Uh, and we're in the middle of a crisis right now. And, and my hope, my naive, optimistic, millennial hope uh, is that people right now really understand and believe in the importance of government because we've seen what happens when, when we don't. The damage can really be severe uh, and embarrassing. It's embarrassing for us um, across the world stage right now. And so my hope is that people are going to step up. Uh, as Sabrina said, in the midterms, people are going to come out. They're running for office in greater numbers. They're volunteering. They're donating. They're getting involved. They're getting engaged. Because what we're seeing right now is what happens when you don't get engaged. Uh, and so we'll see. We'll see what happens. Uh, if the people who are listening to us right now actually step up and, and lean in and, and you know get involved and try to make their world a better place. Um, because, uh, you know, now is a unique opportunity to really have that voice. Uh, and I think, as, as you said, Ian, it's, it's our time to do that. And I'll, and I'll pick up what Mark, Mark left off. Uh, for those that are listening, I think it is certainly important to lean in, but really realizing that there will be a lot of challenges out there before us, folks that don't want us to achieve our goals and dreams, our aspirations and uh, for those that are listening, you know, you don't need permission to live your dream. If I would have listened to those that didn't want me to go mm-hmm. down this path, I wouldn't be here today. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that can be some source of an inspiration for whatever you're deciding to do in your career path or in your life. Uh, just go out there and do it. We've talked about a lot of things. and We've talked about our concerns today. But I, I really do want people that you know, are, are, are listening uh, to, to walk away with is that we really are hopeful for our future. Mm-hmm. You know, we understand that, you know, it, it's all against us. We understand we're, we're under the gun and we're, we're in a position where, you know, things could end up not that great for us mm-hmm. uh, and could, not end up, could end up even worse for our kids' generation. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, but I'm also confident in, you know, who I am, who you guys are, who our generation is mm-hmm. uh, to make selfless decisions. So I'm Absolutely. proud to serve with you guys. I'm proud to be a part of this caucus. And I'm glad that you guys spent a little bit of time with me talking about this because I think it's important for people to hear our perspective. So I uh, thank you for your time, guys. Oh, thank you. Really Ian. appreciate it. Totally yeah. agree. All right. Well, uh, that's it for our episode of Look West. So thanks again, guys. All right. Absolutely. Thanks, Ian. Thanks, Sabrina. Thank you both.